Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Horror Vanguard. I'm John, and I am joined, as always, by my co-ghost and comrade, Ash. Ash, how are you doing? Uh, just, just like melting away in this uh, totally non-anthropogenic, unseasonably hot weather. Uh, it's you love to see it, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we are hugely uh, privileged and excited because we are joined uh, by our friend, your friend and comrade, Brett O'Shea from Revolutionary Left Radio. Brett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, um, Ash is in Chicago. I'm a couple hundred miles to the west in Omaha, and it is just as hot here. I think the heat index in the last couple of days has gotten up to like 110. Um, I have a Great Dane, too, and, and they don't do oh, good no. in this super hot weather. So I've been oh, trying to no. keep all the blinds closed and, and keep my keep my dog as well as my, the rest of my family uh, safe from this heat. It's crazy. Just indoors, like lying in the shade. <laughs> yeah, my and my AC is just like fighting to keep up. You know, it's like 10 degrees hotter than I want it just because it's, it's working 24-7 just to maintain some level of comfort in the house. And uh, Yeah, solidarity to all of our American uh, goth comrades who are just <laughs> melting in this heat. Yeah, it's uh, not, not goth weather. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Brett, for, for listeners who have been uh who have never listened to a left-wing podcast before could you <laughs> could you maybe could you maybe explain a little bit about um who you are and what you do and the kind of projects that you're engaged in before we jump into uh the film today yeah sure um just quickly i i host two um podcasts revolutionary left radio sort of the the flagship show that's almost two and a half years old at this point um, obviously, we cover history, um, revolutionary politics, just try to do a lot of different stuff there. I'm also doing this new thing called a red hot take where I basically in like monologue style and break down some topic in detail, which has been really fun and, and kind of challenging in interesting ways. And then on our other podcast is Red Menace. And that's not only a podcast, it's also a YouTube show where we, me and my co-host Allison Escalante, we tackle, you know, works of Marxist theory and uh, we try to apply them to our current conditions and we try to have, you know, create a, a place where people can go to have those texts not only explained to them, like actually summarizing the texts in ways that are understandable, but also how are those those theoretical texts applicable to our real world organizing and, you know, the conditions that we have to operate in currently. So I'm kind of just attacking, you know, on two different fronts and with both shows. And so um, if people don't know, we're on YouTube. Uh, Red Menace is all under Revolutionary Left Radio on YouTube. So if you're interested in checking that out, definitely give it a shot. We're also recording my hot takes and putting them on YouTube as well, um, just to put a little more video content out there. So that's basically me, I guess. No, nice. that's a that's a great intro, and we we were so happy that we got to be involved uh, in your latest Red Hot take about the need yeah. to never, ever, ever talk to the fucking pigs yeah uh, i appreciate it. you guys helping me out on that that was awesome but um thank you so much for coming if people don't know brett has been 
uh, I think a really key figure in this big resurgence of leftist podcasting, of of kind of leftist discourse that's really emerged in the last few years. Um, and we're just we're just so excited to have you on. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to, to talk with both of you. It's been long overdue for me to come on the Horror Vanguard, so I'm happy we can finally make this happen. <laughs> yes, finally yes. making it happen. Yes. Uh, before before we get rolling, though, because people tend to tune out uh, toward, towards the end of the show, if you want to, uh, would you plug your Patreons or any other any other ways our listeners can help support your work in the, the uh, like larger RevLeft podcasting network? Sure, yeah. Then the number one place to go, we actually have like a website put together now. So it's revolutionaryleftradio.com. You can find our YouTube. You can find Patreons to both Red Menace and Rev Left Radio. We offer lots of bonus content on each, you know, um, and you can pretty much find anything you need on that website. We're trying to centralize everything in one location. So yeah, revolutionaryleftradio.com. You'll find Hell all yeah. that stuff. And link links in the show notes, of course. And that was a that was a hell of a slick plug as well. <laughs> like you you've been practicing this. You've been practicing. I thought about it because oftentimes, like I'm thinking about the content of a show when I come on as a guest, and then I kind of get always caught off guard with people like, "Who are you?" and "Can you plug your stuff?" And so I was like, "This time I'm ready. This time I'm ready." Man's on it. The man's on it. <laughs> um, we are very excited to have you on, and we are talking about um, what I think is is what could have been a really disposable and um, sort of throwaway film, but actually is really, really fun and really enjoyable, which is Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, and as always, it's now become a regular feature of the Horror Vanguard. It is time for Ash to give his patented uh, plot recap, pricey overview of this film with the usual warning that spoilers are in full effect. Yes, spoilers and heavily patented. I we will be pursuing legal action over any other uh, quote unquote movie style podcast who engages in <laughs> satirical movie summaries. Yeah, you know who you are, and you will be hearing from our attorneys. <laughs> right, the, the powerful legal arm of the horror vanguard will find you. Our go our goth lawyer. <laughs> oh. oh man, yeah, the things I would spend Patreon money on if we had the money for a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> right. In a departure from the proud and, dare I say, Hitchcockian tradition of films like Wrong Turn, 1 through 6, Inbred, and The Hills Have Eyes, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil tells the story of two hillbillies that have complex emotional lives and agency, rather than just being deformed backwoods cannibals. In a twist that will shock literally no one with any experience in higher ed, the real monsters are bourgeoisie undergrads. Bigoted and held back by an antiquated worldview, these college kids viciously assault two courageous hillbillies just trying to enjoy their vacation home. Will Tucker and Dale survive the night in the woods? Will class consciousness prevail? Will this movie accidentally create the discursive pretext necessary to fundamentally reinterpret the way horror has conceptualized the rural poor? Find out on the next exciting episode of Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, uh, I, I, I say it every time, but every single one of these just makes me, just makes me so happy. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> um, yes, that's right. We are talking about 2010's Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Um, so where, where should we start? Should we start with kind of some initial impressions and then we'll sort of jump into maybe some of the kind of uh, philosophical and more theoretical ways of thinking about this as film critics and people who are on the left 
Yeah, sure. Um, I, I can just sort of give my first impressions. I'd never seen this film. Um, I never even really, I, I, it sort of appeared to me as sort of a bad B movie. I didn't know that it was <laughs> sort of self-aware and, and meta in the way that it turned out to be. So it was really a, a genuine treat to sit down and, and watch this movie. I mean, it's kind of hard to have a horror comedy film that really makes me laugh. But this was, I, I was howling at multiple points mm -hmm. um, throughout this show. It was so fun to watch. It felt like the, the movie flew by. Um, and one of the things that I really liked about it, and we might get into more stuff later, but uh, the male friendship between between Tucker and yes. Dale was like so cute and wholesome and like, yeah, wonderful. And I really liked how you, they portrayed, you know, and, and we'll get into the class dynamics in, in a bit, but like they, they portrayed two country guys, you know, who stereotypically would be machismo and, and, and unsensitive and sort of crude but they're actually really sensitive, like loving friends who are encouraging of one another and supportive of one another. And so that little that male friendship was really one of the the, the core parts of this film that I just I just sort of adored. It, it was mm -hmm. a great film overall. Oh, yeah. What about you, Ash? What about you? Um, I, I absolutely love like the thing that really draws me into this movie is so this is this is an Eli Craig film and Eli Craig did uh, Zombieland and Little Evil which I also, uh, I, they're really funny, really like engaging twists on the horror genre to the friendship between Tucker, Tucker and Dale. Like that's what really draws me in to, to Eli Craig's work is his, his ability to do these kind of like non-traditional depictions of male characters. I don't think it's a stretch to say that this film was kind of like almost discursively brilliant. It's so competently inverting all of the standard tropes of rural or hillbilly horror you know, all of the stuff like The Hills Have Eyes and Inbred and wrong, the Wrong Turn franchise and, and countless other movies. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Deliverance. And, and this one, this one just like treat, treats these people as people, you know, like, like it, it returns to, to, to kind of like, you know, even though like this isn't really set in any any particular rural anywhere, you know, like this was all filmed in Alberta. But these are supposed to be like like American, like South, South Central rural guys. Yeah. Aren't they, I think they're supposed to be in like West Virginia or like the Appalachian Mountains. Yeah, I think that that's the vibe that was strongly, strongly going for, I think. But I just, I just really, really love how how it kind of like like it almost shows like that outsider horror from their perspective of like you know like the the you know just as like bourgeoisie college kids would like see Tucker and Dale and immediately think slasher killers or something yeah like, yeah. like Tucker and Dale are going to see these college kids and they're going to be like oh fuck like there goes the rent <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> definitely no i i completely agree with both of you i really like this film as a as a genuine uh and very sort of sweet and heartfelt uh buddy comedy about Two guys who are just having a doozy of a weekend, and <laughs> it's it's full of these like gen like really lovely character moments, like Dale's fondness for pickled eggs and uh, <laughs> Tucker there giving his giving his friend the little pep talk about how he's totally good enough to uh, to 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 uh, form a relationship with Ali. Um, and I think the the class discourse that's running through this film is really interesting, and we'll get onto maybe a little bit talking about the kind of history of how rural America has always been a source of horror for a particular kind of bourgeois subject. Um, but it's also just a really funny comedy movie. <laughs> slapstick, slapstick comedy, and there's lots of references. Yes. 
to other movies. Obviously, the uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when he's getting stung by bees is a funny inversion of that. Um, yes. Absolutely hilarious. But I also noticed the, the wood chipper was from from Fargo, right? They even mm-hmm. yeah, had that yeah. little. They played on that riff too. But it very it very much was like slapstick comedy, but in the best sort of way. Uh, really, really genuinely made you belly laugh, and and that's sort of rare in films for me. So I really enjoyed that. Oh, what I think at horror comedy. Horror and comedy go really, really well together uh, because of that ability for both com- comedy and horror to kind of viscerally affect you. And that's how you know you're watching a good comedy film, if it's actually like rendering you physically incapable of doing anything. <laughs> and that's and that's how you know you're also watching a good horror movie, which is... Uh, because that's something that you can't you can't not look at. It's something that kind of makes you watch it. So I think that those two genres really do go well together. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I also, I also really like that a lot of the, a lot of like the gags in in this movie are are really centrally premised on this class tension. You know, like like one one of uh like you know we've got we've got the first one where where uh Dale Dale walks up to Allison and the other like generically attractive college co- collegiate people. And and he's just like you going camping, <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> like 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 that's that's so that's so good. And instead of reading that as awkward, like maybe they would if it was another college kid that approached them, they read it as horrifying. But then but then there's the one the one incident that's just like so good where they rescue Allison from drowning, and then like like all all of like the college friends see them loading Allison into their into like a canoe, and and they just kind of like turn everybody and they're like we got your friend. <laughs> <laughs> and like under under any circumstance with like any other like class and cultural like like read overlaid onto that like the the first reaction is totally like oh oh my god they've they've, they've saved our friend from drowning but like this 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 so oh, like all of these like comedic tensions playing so cleverly on like the traditional appreciation of like the rural poor and horror is just so smart and yeah, the the film is really driven by by that sort of fundamental misunderstanding on both sides, and it has you know comedic effect in this film where everything that the the Ducker that tail uh, Jesus that Tucker and Dale try to do get misinterpreted by the by the college kids. But you know, speaking about broader issues in society, there is that fundamental misunderstanding often between you know the city and the rural, the the progressive coastal people and like the the flyover country people and it, that that miscommunication happens you know really from both directions and when you don't fundamentally misunderstand when you don't fundamentally understand another person it's much easier to fall prey to these really corrosive and toxic stereotypes about who they are in lieu of actually having any sort of understanding and i personally like i relate to to tucker and dale and i've i've only lived in yeah. I only lived in two places my entire life, Nebraska and Montana. All of my buddies from high school are less exaggerated versions of Tucker and Dale hunters, <laughs> fishermen, beer drinkers. We go camping every year together. Uh, so like, and I have also been to college, but my sympathies and my gut reaction is like, oh, I know Tucker, Tuckers and Dales, you know? Oh yeah. I don't yeah. really know these college kids in my personal life like that. So it was, it was interesting to think about it in that, those terms. Yeah, and those the, those those class tensions too, or, or I guess this like uh, you know, because because even though like in a lot of respects, kind of like what you're alluding to there, like I'm I'm a first generation like from working poor to academia type, and so like like I am of the same class as like Tucker and Dale, despite the fact that I'm like a 
urban like academia elite guy now <laughs> and i think that a lot of those a lot of those tensions are inherently produced by the state and by corporate power in order to like further atomize the worker and like we had that like like i don't know like that that viral dunking that was going around a couple days ago where that like guy who was like the the regional director of the southern democratic party branch or something did, did that whole twitter rant where he was like you know who's not great enough rural white americans you know we do everything for them and they're just racist psycho cannibal killers yeah they're not they're not grateful enough was exactly was exactly the 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 phrase that was used yeah and it's like this is this is worse than useless that this is <laughs> that this is coming from a political party that is ostensibly on the side of working class well they're not on the side yeah. of working class people anymore because they constantly talk about uh the middle classes they're appealing to this kind of mythologized vision of like a 1950s suburb which does not and maybe never did exist in american politics yeah all of their but, politics aims toward aim towards uh like the mayberries that don't exist anywhere anymore but it's like that attitude is just it's like how do you like the amount of contempt <laughs> that you have to have uh towards people that you probably that you clearly uh, have never really met or spoken to to go rural white americans are not grateful enough for everything everything that we have generously bestowed upon them and it's like you know wasn't it like mine workers at the beginning of the 20th century that were getting fucking shot by militarized uh private armies because they wanted you know to maybe not die when they went out to their job you know wasn't it like textile workers who were organizing with with anarchists and the iww to make working conditions in america something other than a complete hellhole it's like if anything you know, there's a kind of radical history of working class organization of like rural people self-organizing and defending their own interests. And I'm like, this is you. You're not some beneficent outsider who have given these things over to people. These 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 things were won by organizers and by people who were. Um, there's a great story of um, in Hammer and Ho, which is is it Robin Kelly. Robin Kelly's book about uh, communists in Alabama in the early 20th century, where um, there's an interview with uh, with an old sharecropper, uh, you know, an old black farmer, and they they ask him, you know, how did you how did you kind of keep your farm when the Klan were running through here? And the old guy pulls out um, a copy of Lenin's "What Is to Be Done." Hell yeah, let's go. And, cool. and, right. and a fucking box of shotgun shells. Goddamn right. It's like, that's how you do it. <laughs> so this this <laughs> idea that like <laughs> this idea that like rural communities are not grateful enough. It's like fuck out of here, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah and, and like like I really like I love that point so much. Like grateful for what? Like like great grateful for the pittance of of like funding for for needed uh, resources like education and health, or or like grateful for like becoming like de facto resource extraction colonies like you see in Appalachia. And now, a word from our sponsors. Alright, creeps, it's time for another... What's all that noise? John, where are you? Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, sorry, Ash. Sorry, sorry. Little busy at the moment. Little bit busy at the moment. John, are, are you on Wall Street? 
Why? No, no, sell, sell, sell. I said, I said, sell. Damn it. Uh, sorry, 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 Ash. Um, Buster didn't work out, so I decided to diversify our investment portfolio to try and bring some extra money in. John, we don't have a portfolio. Where did you get all this money? Ah, well, uh, yes, I, I may have set you up with a mortgage. I I don't even own a house. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. A literal mortgage, uh, a deal with the dead. Um, I I don't know how to say this, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to come out and... And people on Ash, I sold your soul. What? To who? Well, uh, at first it was just one of Hell's demonic brokers, but they quickly broke the debt up and sold it off to several investment companies. I think the majority of your spectral assets are currently held by a venture capital firm building some smart condos just outside of Denver. Wait, wait, John, why do I smell brimstone? Uh, oh, oh, looks like your spectral assets have gone into the red. Uh, it's, you know, it's in the terms and conditions of the of the, of the deal. Um, you should check your email. Uh, look, look, okay, don't worry. Uh, listen, if I can flip these teenage blood futures, I might be able to convert your spectral assets into soul bonds and get you out of hell. Out of what? Uh, sorry, sorry, Ash, I've got some, got some very important things to take. Take care of. Yo, investment demon, come get some. spooky to keep hp above ground sign up to our patreon where you'll get access to our discord server early access to episodes and the exclusive arcane book club of horror if each of our listeners contributed just a few dollars a month we wouldn't have to treat our very souls as fungible investment opportunities remember to like share and review our show wherever premium podcasts are sold now back to the program right and you know I heard something really interesting that really made sense of this this sort of contempt and this sort of, you know, just like repulsive hatred that coastal elites have towards the rural white poor specifically. And it's actually from Matt um, on, on Chapo Trap House. He was talking about this exact idea and, and his his argument, which I'm very sympathetic to, <clears throat> is that <clears throat> these liberals, especially these coastal professional class liberals who, you know, have technically succeeded in the meritocracy of our society, they do internalize that bourgeois resentment towards the poor and they internalize this sense that they are where they are because they are better and they worked harder, but it's taboo in liberal, democratic, polite circles to talk like that. And this this hatred for the the poor and this belief in their own superiority can't come out towards towards black and brown poor people, right? Because of the whole liberal identity politics thing and this whole progressive notion of race. And, you know, liberals will quickly talk about structural issues when it comes to poor black communities, right? But what it can do is be sort of synthesized, concentrated, and 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 shot at the rural white poor. And that is how they can sort of 
have their cake and eat it too, right? They can hate poor people and believe in this own myth of bootstrap superiority, but they can also feign to be liberals and progressives when it comes to racial issues and, and other um, you know, welfare programs that would benefit racialized poor people. And so, you know, having the white working class as a scapegoat is a way for these these you know, elitist liberals to be able to sort of convey and get out um, their hatred for the poor. And they just direct it towards them because that's the safest in their circles. And I think that it, that goes a long way in explaining that sort of seething contempt that to us three seems sort of incomprehensible. Like, where does this hatred come from? What would possess somebody to sit down and, and make a tweet like that? You know, but I think this argument explains why and really shows shows that and in the film that that hatred and that contempt you know really come out through the character of of chad the frat boy who has this sort of you know pathological hatred of these people and these pathological assumptions about what their motivations are and what their desires are and that turns into this murderous rage you know yeah absolutely and to be honest i think this i think it's pretty baked into sort of american kind of class structures right you if you look at some of the earliest writing from america there was this long kind of fear of what would happen to you as as a as a as a colonizer if you strayed too far outside of the bounds of the colonial project exposure to you the know, woods if, yeah yeah exposure to the woods where which was full of you know barbarism and other kind of these often very racialized um uh discourses of discrimination and hatred i mean there's a there's a really old um uh short story called by uh nathaniel hawthorne called young goodman goodman brown about uh someone who leaves their settlement and walks out into the woods and encounters satan um, and it's like there's this long like history of thinking that rural spaces are both opportunities but are kind of at the very base level full of kind of then they're, they're not civilized and the people who live there are also dangerous wild you know uh, and it would come out in the kind of what 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 in film studies that gets called like exploitation film um you know, 2000 Maniacs or Texas Chainsaw Massacre is these places which are like full of full of people who are no longer like fully human. This is what Chad says in the film. He's like, you know, this he goes into their holiday home that they're really excited about <laughs> fixing up and goes, this is where evil lives. We have to we have to, we have to burn it to the ground. It's like you don't you don't necessarily see these people as fully human yeah, and I think I think uh, both of you have touched on something that I, I think is really important to this discourse, and that is, you know, when we have these these kind of like uh, you know like these Democratic Party operatives and, and these other like you know like uh, liberal elite media figures, let's say, use like like saying like oh it's you know the reason we have Trump is because of like you know rural white working class voters. Oh, that's entirely inaccurate. The reason we have the the current political condition we have in the United States is like well-educated, economically secure, right-wing, you know, white supremacist losers. Like, that that's the real root of this cause. Part of, part of the discourse here is that when they start saying, like, things like, oh, like, all all of, like, red, like, quote-unquote, like, red country and, like, the, these areas are just full of right, white, poor people who are, who are stupid and greedy and lazy, one of the key functions of that is to erase the fact that these communities 
aren't just totally white people. These communities aren't just totally straight people. These communities aren't just totally men. And that's what they're being written into being. That's like this narrative that's being enforced and established and created is that there, there is no, uh, there are no people of color in these communities. There are no indigenous people in these communities. You know, there are no LGBT people in these communities. So when we start to uh, write them out of our discourse and wish them ill, it's okay because we're, we're doing it to, to a supposed oppressor class. Yeah. And that was certainly my experience in like Montana where, you know, we lived on the edge of the Crow reservation and mm -hmm. the community was almost equally made up of these white, more rural cowboy hat wearing white people and these cowboy wearing, you know, indigenous people. And they would work together. Their families were interconnected. I'm not saying that's true on every boundary between reservations and, and countries. And there's certainly. certainly tensions that existed. But at least in the little slice of, of Montana that I lived in for the, you know, short amount of time that I did, you know, that's that speaks, you know, completely true to my experience. That was how it was. And and those relationships, those levels of complexity are necessarily pushed out when you opt for this easy stereotype of these, you know, dumb white hicks, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And it's something that is, it's, it's, it goes back so far, this idea um, in, in the history of America, it just goes back so far, this idea that kind of the rural population is in some way, um, you know, less than. And I do think it's tied into the whole whole kind of philosophy behind the colonial project of America, which is that of the kind of shining city on the hill, the civilization yeah. building project. And it's like if you have people who live in a uh, rural fashion, who exist in a kind of agrarian lifestyle, firstly, capitalism can't abide that because it's not the most efficient use of the resource, which is land. And secondly... It, it's seen as being somehow less than a kind of urban city dwelling environment. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that plays out in the movie in a really interesting way because you have you have Chad, who what best name for that character possible right off the bat, <laughs> right? Is it like, twenty ten too? So it was before the whole like Chad and Stacy oh, incel yeah, yeah. jargon, yeah. <laughs> I, I I do like oh, this movie's just like every time every time I think about this movie I kind of find something new I like but I like that Chad has like the most stereotypical yacht club name and like t Tucker and Dale <laughs> are definitely like I would consider those to be like rural names but they're not like you know you know Cletus and Jebediah or something you know, they're, they're not they're not like like way out there into stereotype land so I like how they're they're really leaning into this tropes aversion there are so many points in this movie where. If, if it wasn't for the fact that Chad is committed to this, like, violent political ideology based on class oppression, everything would just end fine. You know, like, Chad is the one who's constantly like, no, we can't, we can't call the cops. We you know we have to just exterminate these people. You can't go talk to them. You can't reason. You know, we have to just go in guns blazing. And it's, it's Chad's kind of, like, class hatred that spurs on everyone else jumping face first into wood chippers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, who is it that actually who is the instigating agent in actually getting all of these people killed it's the it's the bougie fucking collar popping douchebag oh i was gonna God. say the guy with the pop collar and a polo shirt can i just can i just say something about that this was uh this film was in 2010 i graduated high school i think in 2007 and i mean we cannot understate that that period of time um just how prevalent this 
Hollister, Amber Crombie and Fitch, bright neon popped collar shirt thing was. I mean, now I was not that. I was an alternative kid, so I would have like new metal shirts, like corn shirts and shit. <laughs> um, but like the, the the cool kids, you know, the preppy kids, they all had. I remember they used to put polos on polos and have like double popped collars. <laughs> du- the double popped collar, Seven which is like collar cool, was my favorite meme that came out of that time. Hell yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Like the, the exact same thing. That was like the aesthetic environment that I lived through through late high school. It was just like all of these fucking assholes with like frosted tips and a thousand pop oh. collars and fucking like okay. Abercrombie and Hollister shirts. And Birkenstocks with it, right. you know. <laughs> and then and then like like solidarity with all the comrades who had like corn corn t shirts and like uh braided ICP hair and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> My people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hey John, the, the, can I ask you a question? Yeah, yeah. I I'm I'm asking this on behalf of all your American listeners. What is the what is the equivalent of the sort of southern quote unquote hillbilly or hick? Um, in your country, is there an exact equivalent or is it a little different? I was wondering about that. Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, there are a couple of sort of subsets, but maybe no direct equivalent. So traditionally in, in British horror, you might have the folk horror community, such as Summer Isle from the Wicker Man, which is uh, sort of sort of like that, but not, re- not really. And then you get uh, probably the contemporary equivalent it was something that was really prevalent in like 2008 to about 2012, which was the discourse around chavs, mm-hmm. uh, which was this horrible fucking phrase to talk about um, sort of urban, poorly educated white people who often lived in like social housing. And they were con- they're like they're like the tabloid stereotype of would be someone drunk, fond of Burberry clothing and gold jewelry uh and um you know the teenage pregnancy and like so there isn't maybe a kind of direct equivalent but there are still sort of like um the 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 this monsterizing this otherizing of a particular um working class background which crops up in the UK as well to kind of throw my two cents into that um there is the north south divide in the UK, yeah, which, yeah, totally. which plays on a lot of, um, it doesn't map onto it in, entirely because of like obvious and massive cultural and historical differences, but but there but there is like that that cultural split of like the the ignorant kind of slobbering working hordes that live in the north, and the the well off, well educated, uh, proper and and forward thinking people who live in the south. Yeah. Uh, usually in the southeast, focused mm-hmm. around Lon- London, and then once you get north of London, you know that's where you're in the north, and that's where you know everybody talks funny and and and, and you know you can't get a decent latte to save your life and and things like that. So, so the, the uh, north south thing is sort of inverted in, in your country. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, that's that's something that's very that's hugely prevalent. Um, but I don't know whether that kind of finds the same expression in horror. I wonder why that is. I, I think, to be honest, I think it probably has something to do with just geographic size and 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 the idea in kind of American culture of like frontier living. Yeah. 
um, which doesn't re- which can't really exist in the UK simply because <laughs> the country the country is not that big, so it's yeah. it's it's always kind of difficult to get beyond the realms of kind of the edges of the map, as it were. But in the states, that's that's something that's still even now is still sort of conceivable. Uh, Ash mentioned the wrong turn films right at the top, oh, and yeah. it's like you know that was something that depended upon you know these hundreds of thousands of acres of land, which you go yeah maybe that would be a thing in america and that, that i don't know if that would still be something that would crop up in the uk as much yeah that's interesting i know like if you look at a picture of the united states at, at night with all of our lights lit up you can see like between probably where i am in, in like the very eastern sliver of, of nebraska which opens up to what is you know technically called the midwest um you know chicago and, and then further mm-hmm. you go to philadelphia new york all of that um, and then California is obviously very populous, but if you look at a map at night of all that middle ground, most of Nebraska and everything west of it, I mean, you know, you, a couple cities here and there, but especially in the Dakotas, Wyoming, Montana, you're talking huge swaths of completely almost unpopulated land. Oh, yeah. um, and so I'm sure that that does play into that fear of of getting lost in the woods or, you know, going to an area where you're completely detached from all other normal normal seas of life i don't know that might that definitely probably plays a role though that's interesting i never thought about that i I think that that attitude's really pervasive through the whole country too because really like unless you're in like the greater like dc new york city metropolitan area there's really nowhere that kind of uh, has the same innervation and is is as built out as the entirety of england is and even like illinois like illinois is almost the size of the country of england and you have like 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 speaking to your to your to your map that shows all the shitties at night like like Chicago is just just burning brightly like a spotlight into the void and then the rest of Illinois is black you know like there's the rest of Illinois is is rural farm communities so even if you live in these kind of like uh major metropolitan american cities all all it takes is maybe like an hour and a half to 2 3 hours to drive out into the middle of nowhere into the sticks yeah that's interesting I do have a question for you guys, though, if you're interested. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I was doing some reading about this film, and something that, that came up once or twice, not a lot, but enough to bring up, is this whole question of of whether or not this film is at all feminist, right? Like, it's inverting these these other tropes. It's it's taking these horror tropes and turning them on their heads for comedic you know, purposes, but also you know, for the more reflective and sensitive audiences to think about what role these tropes play in our society— um, and in some ways, it, it's playing on these, you know, these slasher ideas of of women, you know, conventionally attractive, busty women. There's even a scene where a woman goes topless into the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also sort of inverted in the form of Allison and her relationship with Dale. So I was wondering what at all do you think this show could have with regards to feminist content, whether you think it's it's one side or the other or, or somewhere in between? I'll, I'll go first. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, um, you know, as, as, as with anything, it's, I, I think it's, uh, it's never as easy as just saying like, oh, okay, this is a feminist movie, so we can kind of just wholly interpret it within that framework, or this is an anti-feminist mm-hmm. movie and we could do the same but in inverse. Um, I think there are parts of this film which I would say are decidedly feminist and have very strong feminist leanings like you know you were talking earlier about the relationship between 
Tucker and Dale. And that is that is an incredibly feminist depiction of the relationship of two men in, in popular American cinema to be that open with each other about their emotional lives is is a depiction in popular culture that just just isn't there and that, that's something that's incredibly feminist yeah but, get yourself a comrade like tucker right oh, yeah. <laughs> but then but then you get the five the very final scene of the movie is one of dale's friends like punching and knocking out a woman and dragging her away you know yeah so, i hated that yeah like, oh, hated it was that. a horrible, horrible ending to this movie why like what did that add to the film it wasn't funny I, I that was like that film should have ended right before that happened. I think right or just or just like get, let 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 like if you really want to cap it on, on their relationship, just 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 have them like have that cute little moment and kiss. You don't even need the like hills have eyes looking dude. And I think that, yeah yeah I, I think that's what it was. Is that like their buddy? I, f- I forget his name, but um, he has very the hills have eyes attitude going on. He's got the like greasy kind of kind of hair he's, he's got the crazy eyes and the messed up teeth like he looks like a a, a, a hillbilly dude from wrong turn or something yeah, you know yeah, yeah. He, he's he's radiating that like unhinged cannibal attitude and i think that that's what they were trying to signal like to just like yeah. a, a tongue-in-cheek nod to to what the genre expectations are but, yeah, but I, how but, they play but it, it out kind fails. of yeah, it undercuts the entire yes. relationship they built mm-hmm. between uh, Dale and Allison, right? <clears throat> um, just to pick up on what you 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 asked, Brett, I I was thinking about that in the context of Chad, the amazingly named <laughs> Chad, and he's like he's like the the least sexually competent character <laughs> in the entire film, right? Because mm-hmm. true. he he's got this he's kind of just oozing male entitlement. Yeah. And and he's not only entitled, but he's also completely useless with women. <laughs> it seems he has no kind of ability to 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 read the situation and immediately turns violent and possessive. And it's no and it, so I actually think, um, as Ash pointed out, I think in certain aspects there are elements of this film which get their joke by presenting something very sincerely when we would expect that sincerity to be absent mm-hmm. you know because that because there's the um there, there are moments where they where they present something just very very straightforwardly like the relationship between tucker and dale and not we go oh well this is funny because normally that isn't what would happen um and so chad is absolutely a kind of figure of ridicule and the film just treats with utter contempt quite rightly um because he's completely unable to actually process what it is he wants, but I also think the ending is a complete misstep, and that whole and that whole oh look we're going back to the tired trope of like male violence against women, mm-hmm. like not it's not only not funny it just kind of ruins the entire relationship between Dale and Allison. I just think it's such a bad note to end on. Yeah, because because Dale and Allison were caring people; they yeah. were trying to help everybody throughout the entire film and all of a sudden now they just don't give a fuck that a woman's being brutalized behind them i do think that ash is right in that you know they're trying they're probably trying to do something it wasn't just lazy right they're Mm -hmm. they're using tropes throughout this film and one of the other tropes they use to interesting effect maybe is like this whole 
a woman tied to the railroad tracks, damsel in distress yeah. thing, you know, and yeah, then Dale yeah. busts in and then helps her. And, and that was kind of funny. And I can see that they're trying to do the same thing maybe at the end of there with just sort of introducing a trope and just sort of like having that be like, yeah, it's so absurd, isn't it? But it just didn't hit. And then just thinking about the everything you said, both of you said about the feminist content of the film. One of the things they do with inverting tropes uh, in, in the horror genre is that women... Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is right. Only like two of the multiple people dead were women. They all came in like the latter half of the film and none of them were killed by men. So the, the only two women died. The rest were men and uh, the women did not die at the hands of a man, which is, you know, in the horror genre, that is an inverted trope. Mm -hmm. And so I can see that they're they're playing with these cards and they're thinking deeply about these ideas. Sometimes it works and then like at the last scene, sometimes it fails spectacularly and you're not actually interrogating the trope. You're not thinking about it. You're not inverting it. You're just sort of lazily replicating it, you know, and then hoping like a, with a wink and a nod that the audience sees what you're trying to do. But I'm not sure that we do. You know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. What yeah. do you think it is? What do you think it is about violence that, that makes us laugh? Because some of my <laughs> biggest, biggest laughs in this film we're at the just over-the-top um, displays of often self-inflicted violence. And then there's also this whole idea of like exaggerating violence for comedic effect like we find in Tarantino films, mm -hmm. um, like Django Unchained. You know, a lot of those violent scenes are so exaggerated that you just can't help but laugh. I was wondering what you guys what you guys make of, of what it is that we're doing when we have a hearty laugh at a gory, violent act. <laughs> I think it's um for me like I I'm I'm sure there has been but I, I've never come across like uh, any 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 attempts to approach this from like a psychological or maybe biological perspective but I think I think for me what's going on when this happens is kind of like this this three stooges phenomenon where 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 it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> a, it's kind of a play on context right because if you take like just any given gag of the three stooges is just like three guys beating the hell out of each other which in and of itself like needs context to inform it right is that are we watching wrestling is this a street brawl like what's going on in these contexts and i think that you know like the, the context here in tucker and dale versus evil is that you know the, the, these these are just two incredibly well-meaning caring and and relatable humans who are who are just just trying to like navigate this really awkward situation they've been thrown into and even before people start killing themselves all around them like like if if I was on like a fishing trip with a buddy, and you know we we happened to to say rescue a, a young woman from drowning, and then all of her friends ran away from us, I would just be really confused. <laughs> exactly. You know, like I would be like I I understand exactly when Tucker and Dale are like we 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 can't go to the cops. You know how this looks like. Like like I, I get that, and I think for me, what's making the violence hilarious here is is, is that it's underpinned by that like. Like, like this, this is effectively like a home improvement rom-com where, where Tucker and Dale fix up their, <laughs> their adorable uh, lakeside cabin and Dale finds the meaning of self-confidence and love. But there's a bunch of people who keep throwing themselves into wheat threshers and horrible shit around them. And like, it's so <laughs> funny. Like, God. It's the, a, the yeah, little chipper I, bit where he's running a stab, uh, Tucker, and then, God, that was hilarious. He just dives in. <laughs> I, 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 the, 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 I've seen this movie like 
I've seen this movie like five times now. And that one line where, where Tucker is like, college kids keep killing themselves on my property. It's just the funniest <laughs> thing. <laughs> so In a way, I do think there is a big relationship between violence and, um, and comedy. And, I think it's I think it's because it's cathartic, right? Normally, this violence would be horrifying and would be an escalation of tension. If this was in like a kind of straightforward hillbilly horror film, there would be an escalation of tension at everyone. But all of the all of the violence here is like just undercutting it at every single point, and it's so like. Tucker and Tucker and Dale just sell the hell out of it. There's that there's that amazing moment where Dale accidentally knocks Allison out with a shovel and then <laughs> falls back falls backwards into the grave with the guy who's like stabbed himself and he's just going ah ah this is awful so like, yeah of course Dale would think this was awful he's not he's like none of the violence is there for their enjoyment it's only there for ours in a way it reminds me quite a lot of um a European horror film called Dead Snow which features yes. um Nazi zombies getting annihilated by snowmobiles. Um, we, we might have to do an episode on it down the line at some point because it's really just because it, it's it's basically a cartoon. Like you know, you don't need to kind of explain to a six year old that Tom and Jerry, the violence here isn't real and you shouldn't do this in the real world, right? They know they know that if you <laughs> if you drop a piano on somebody, you're not going to see the notes appear around their head and their teeth won't be <laughs> piano keys. But, and I think the same is true here, right? We we see all of this and we go, we, no, this is cathartic. This lets us laugh at it without, because our two um, main characters, Tucker and Dale, just play it so straight. And it's, they, they, the film is very aware that all of this is a joke. But what's amazing is that those two don't seem to be aware that it's a joke. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, uh, the whole sort of genre and then the, the, the buddy horror film comedy mix up you also see that in i think really well in Shaun of the dead yes i think Shaun of the dead was a good decade before this film um but obviously i think it it really opened doors for this sort of horror comedy to come to the forefront and and, and you know intrigue us in the way that it does would you guys agree that it sort of goes back to to that film or does it go back further oh yeah i definitely think that there's a lot of strong connective tissue between these things and like horror as as a genre as because kind of like loved courting comedy because i think john john was talking about this earlier like horror so so horror functions because when you're watching a horror movie it's it's playing with you biologically right you know it's doing something to your body it's cranking up your tension and and releasing it by making you scream or jump or like 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 grab onto your partner and and hold on in fear or something and comedy is functioning by ratcheting up your tension and then and then making you laugh with a gag. You know, like like these these two are functioning in, in incredibly similar ways. And like, you know, as far as horror cinema goes, like we have stuff like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and, and things like that. So like the <laughs> yeah. the, the, the like uh, uh, doofuses wind up in horror scenario. It has kind of like been like a, a reliable standby for cinema for a while now. I think one of my favorite early um, horror comedies is uh, a film from the sixties called "The Vampire," the fearless vampire kill. Or, or, pardon me, your teeth are in my neck. Ah. Um, which, which, 
is uh and i think the reason that horror and comedy go so well together is because we know what the tropes of horror are Mm -hmm. so we know what the beats are right so a lot of the comedy in this film comes between the juxtaposition between the score and the sound and actually what we know about the characters that have been revealed in action so we know that tucker and dale are like these sort of sweet doofuses who are just trying to have a weekend of maybe fixing up the old cabin and we'll maybe do some fishing but and then the camera switches and we get all of this sinister music as they drive past and they're like (laughs) the up pickup truck (laughs) so so it's like we know uh, horror and comedy go so well together because we know what the beats are horror is like generic in, in in and i don't mean that in a kind of pejorative way right it's it's generic in that we know what the rules of the genre are and we know how we know what the rules of the game the film is trying to play is and so when it's when it kind of takes the legs out from under you that's where the punch of the of the comedy comes from yeah makes total sense to me i appreciate you guys educating me on that because i had that question i was like i know ash and john have an answer so (laughs) (laughs) Um, but there is there is one aspect that I wanted to, maybe to talk about a little bit more, which is the ending, because that's where I think, or rather what we might call the the final fight with the monster, which is which is Chad, and they find out Chad's actual true background, which I think is really interesting and makes the class discourse in this film much more uh, subtle than it could have been, uh, because we find out that actual actually. Chad, as they put it in the film, Chad is like half hillbilly and is unable to deal with this truth about himself, which explains why he's become this kind of axe-obsessed maniac who just wants to kill people. What did you all think of the ending? Yeah, that's a tough one because you, you see that, yeah, his inability to accept that and then you also see the absurdity of calling somebody a half hillbilly as if it's like a (laughs) a racial or or ethnic thing and not completely cultural and class-based um i'm not really sure what to to make of that uh what what do you think ash i i find that to be really really interesting because like like obviously like we have tucker and dale right who are the nicest people in this entire movie and they're both like like through and through like backwater hick dudes so so I definitely I don't think the movie is suggesting that like I don't know hillbillyism is like a blood contagion or something. Right. No no but, no. But not I, think it, I think it's definitely really complicating these issues of class that the film is trying to put forward. The the family Chad winds up in is clearly well to do, right? Right like almost comically so based on Chad's affects and his clothes and his general appraisal of rural culture. And like, like he has like, so I, I I think that like his hatred of Tucker and Dale is coming from the environment he was raised in. Right. Like, I don't think he has like this, this, this kind of like congenitive hillbilly psychosis or something. Like, I don't even know how to phrase yeah. it, <laughs> but, but, but I think that like, I, I, I love, I love that whole final sequence. Right. <clears throat> uh, because we have like this classic uh, damsel situation and then like Dale Dale is like struggling to fight back, and then like you, you have you have like this awesome moment, which is just a, a, gr- a great trope where the hero kind of like embraces who they've always been, and like like we get that line from Dale where he's like, "Oh, you want like a, a hillbilly psycho killer? I'll give you one," and then he just kind of like covers himself in all of this random like m- like all of like the the gear from the mill, 
and he's got like the 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 spiked straps on his shoes for for climbing trees and he's got like a welding mask for some reason but he's just like he's geared up like just just like a, a comically overdone uh, a hillbilly killer and then you have chad who like has a complete meltdown when he, when he realizes that like these these class distinctions aren't actually set in stone and they don't actually mean anything in, in any well they do they mean a lot but they don't they don't mean anything in a true level like there's there's nothing inherent to being uh like like from a rural community that makes you good or bad you know and like like that that, that kind of just completely destroys Chad's worldview and that's when like he just loses his mind at that realization and that's what leads to his downfall yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly it, right? I think it's like, you know, Chad is coming to this world with a very black and white dichotomy mm-hmm. of who he is and who they are. And to find out that he is somewhat associated with them, you know, that 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 can't stand in his dichotomous worldview. And so, you know, that, that cognitive dissonance, um, instead of being sort of tr- attempted to be resolved in any meaningful way, just leads to a sort of nihilistic outburst of violence, which anybody watching this film will know is going to end in Chad's death. And he just like, (laughs) he'd rather have death than to face his own similarities with these people that he, in his mind has written off as completely, you know, bad, gross, something that is not him. Right. Other with the capital O. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what makes it so interesting because there's the potential in that moment to go, you know what? Maybe these people that you see as being capital O other violent monsters that exist somewhere over there away from you maybe you actually have something in common with them you know it could be genetic you know you could be uh there could be some genetic connection there could be some familial connection or maybe you just have similar material interests at the end of the day right, <laughs> right. and so as, as as you were both talking i was thinking back to that tweet we were talking about and it's like what would happen to these kind of political establishment uh liberal elites that find out oh maybe maybe these people are not just ungrateful uh unreconstructed racists who we kind of look down on what would happen if they actually realized that maybe there is a kind of mass base of people that have similar uh class interests uh and and then there could be potentially a kind of political party of for and uh, <laughs> with working class people in American politics. Wouldn't that be amazing? Right. But no, what happens is Chad's, Chad's response is exactly like this blue tick on yep. Twitter go, going, no, no, that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I do think that that speaks to um, something about the, the blue checkmark tweet, um, the, the sort of neuroticism in a liberal's mind, especially liberals that are, wedded to this class system because they've come out more or less on top, right? So deep down, they believe themselves to be egalitarians that that want everybody to be equal. But in reality, their class position is such that deep down, they want to continue this system where they find themselves to be on top. And the idea that these rural white people aren't just dumb, crazy hicks that are with chainsaws and axes, but are actually human beings that form a contingent a huge aspect of the overall working class you know that can scare them on some subconscious level because 
if that class consciousness was ever brought to those people and those people, as they have in the past, stood up with that full class consciousness in mind, it could represent a threat to the very system that these blue checkmark liberals depend on for their own smug sense of superiority. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. absolutely. This, this is, this. Uh, for another example, you look at the discourse around... Um, the idea of um, abolishing and, and scrapping all student debt. Um, and you'll see so many people who ostensibly call themselves on the left going, well, I paid off all of my student loans. <laughs> so, so, and it's like, okay, so you had to do something that was uh, awful, bad and expensive. So the solution is to make more people do that. Right. And it's like, what kind of politics is this? If not a politics of spite. <laughs> There's, there's like the, the whole mentality right behind Chad's character, you know, is like he, he, he is one of these people in the most literal sense. Like he was born in the, he was like he is descended from the people who live in this community, right? If, if anyone in this movie should be inherently predisposed to, to care about Tucker and Dale and their plight, it's not Allison, but it's Chad, right? He, he is one of them in, in mm, a really yeah. correct sense, but. You know, he, he was he was taken out of that community at a young age and then he was given power. You know, he, he was given access to power and he was given like a higher class and economic position. And as, as a function of that, he now must defend his access to power and defend his his class position. Like he can't re reach reach down an olive branch to the people below him because he's been assimilated into this machine that only functions to sustain itself. Exactly. And, and ironically, Chad becomes what he fears Tucker and Dale are. Yes. He becomes the raging, yes. you know, psychopath in the woods, mm -hmm. screaming with half of his face burned off, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he can't escape it. He becomes the thing that he thinks he's fighting, and that's when he ultimately succumbs. You know? Yeah, which which at the end of the day, that's everyone who's, like, re retweeting, like, epic Nancy Pelosi clapback memes. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're all Chad with the half burnt face screaming in the wood slowly slowly turning into the thing that they wish that they, they, they could stop yeah ab absolutely and it shows the uh, that, this is why I'm, I'm sort of I'm so happy that we do this show because we can take something that looks like it's so superfluous and so sort of reductive and you can actually see in it there's a kind of fundamental truth about the kind of political structures of the culture from which it emerged. Um, even though on one level we can enjoy it as just like a dumb, schlocky horror <laughs> comedy movie, which it is, but at the same time, it's also trying to say something actually quite serious and interesting about the class structures of um, contemporary America and, and the, the conflict between a kind of uh, urban, educated upper middle class and and kind of a rural less educated population and i think that's that's why horror is such a good diagnostic tool right because it doesn't do any of that in a didactic or explicit way but just by talking about this film you suddenly get into these incredibly important and and actually quite radical areas of political theory oh yeah and and yeah how i always have understood it is Cultural products are products of the superstructure and mm -hmm. film specifically, unlike literature or a painting, is not done by one artist, but is done by hundreds and hundreds of people out of necessity. And so when you have that many people from a given society working on one cultural product, whether it's conscious or not, 
the the product that comes out of that communal effort is going to reflect the anxieties and depravities of the broader class society that we live in. And so we're analyzing superstructural products to understand uh, at a deeper level the the base which underpins them. And that's why this sort of work is so clarifying and and so interesting and so worth doing. Yeah. And I think in some ways, in some ways thinking about it, maybe maybe this film um it underscores a kind of problem now because this is from 2010 and if anything those antagonisms seem to have only become more much more entrenched as increasingly like american politics in the mainstream at least is presented as being kind of intractably divided between you know the two coasts and what what are kind of derisively referred to as the flyover states um so if anything maybe the need for a kind of urgent movement of building class consciousness across those 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 arbitrarily ephemerally imposed lines uh is is more urgent than it was oh yeah and more difficult right because as the contradiction as the contradictions in our society heighten and increase the mystification process on both the conservative and the liberal mm-hmm. end will increase in order to you know obscure those class realities and so many people, you know, in the South or in rural areas or in flyover country, you know, they have been mystified by a sort of Fox News talk radio um, process by which they come to understand their world through the eyes of these rich, you know, broadcasters on the radio or television. And all of that is is in the momentum and in the direction of getting away from any sort of class solidarity any sense that you're you are connected with these these workers in the cities right and all towards these these social issues these these culture war issues to take your eye off the ball a little bit and so you know our job as communists of various sorts is to act as demystifiers oh, yeah. is to do our best and whatever talents we may have you put those towards demystifying the world bringing more clarity and in in its wake that will bring you know, more of the class consciousness that, that we need that is the foundation for any sort of solidarity moving forward. Yeah, that is that is fantastically well put. And I think um, through, throughout this discourse, we've been talking a lot about a lot of, uh, like, I guess, buzzwords, you know, for lack of a more nuanced way to phrase it. But we've been talking about things like, you know, rural poor, white working class, liberals. And I think um, we, we do have a lot of listeners to this show who aren't necessarily... Uh, like like su- super tuned in to to like left political discourse or the online left and things like that, and I think uh, like like Brett, if you wouldn't mind uh, jumping on this question, uh, for for those listeners uh, to to our podcast who are maybe just just tuning in because they like this horror film and they're not necessarily uh, uh, in, into political discourse too much, you know we've been we've been very derisive to liberals and, and maybe to a lot of people that's coming off as kind of strange to them because we also consider ourselves uh you know as quote unquote progressive uh would you would you mind uh digging in a little bit to to the uh distinction between left and liberal yeah yeah no no problem so when we talk about liberalism here we're not even really talking about it in the colloquial sense of the term liberal versus conservative when we say liberals from a marxist or communist or anarchist perspective we're saying the the ruling ideology, which has a which has a progressive, i.e., Democrat liberal um, tinge, and it has a more reactionary conservative end of the spectrum, right? But liberalism is is the ideology that we all live in. Both parties, broadly construed, are liberal. They're just emphasizing different aspects of liberalism. And when we talk about the progressive 
elitists specifically we're talking about the the sort of liberal the democratic liberal professional class um and one thing about liberalism that must exist if we take seriously this idea that liberalism is the ideology of capitalism is this idea that in order for capitalism to continue to exist class contradictions class politics must be suppressed must be obscured the conservatives and the reactionaries do this in obvious ways with regards to pointing at immigrants or you know scapegoating uh, powerless people but liberals do it in much more nuanced ways and so when we're attacking liberals and the neuroticism of the liberal mind and the sort of liberal contempt for poor rural people this is the sort of professional class liberal obscurantism of class thing that we're getting at and so on the left is us right people that think share many of the values that progressive liberals ostensibly share, right? We could listen to an Elizabeth Warren speech, for example, and clap many of the points <laughs> that she makes. Yeah. But what we want to do is show that at the end of the day, these class divisions are the real material bottom level of these higher level conflicts in our society. And any attempt to obscure that class dimension or to run away from it or to suppress it will necessarily lead to confusion and political dysfunction. And that is what we're living through right now. And so in a, you know, a very brief way, that's how I would sort of put that difference. And if you're interested to learn more, you can always check out Revolutionary Left Radio. We talk about this stuff a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah I, I, can't, I can't stress this enough. Like, I think I've listened to every Rev Left episode at this point. I hope so. Um, Spanish Civil War episode, personal favorite. Uh, but, um, I, yeah, like I've learned so much and progressed so much in, in terms of, of my, my own political positions and understandings, uh, by, by not only the content you put forward, but, but the wonderful guests you're able to continue having on that program. So there is a free plug for Rev Left Radio and the, the rest of the Rev Left Radio family of podcasts and other media. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Just to, just to connect everything that Brett was saying back to the film, right? You take uh, Chad at the beginning of the film. Chad looks like his interests are the same as everybody else, right? He performs the and has the kind of correct aesthetic of someone who is on your side, as it mm. were. If, if you assume that the kind of audience for this film is immediately going to kind of identify with a bunch of college kids going off into the woods to party and drink, <laughs> which, you know, I think is a pretty safe bet. But throughout the course of this film, what you actually see revealed is the true divergent um, material conflict, right? And it is, a, it is a material conflict. It isn't necessarily just that, oh, they've just got different ideas or they've misunderstood one another. No, they want fundamentally different things. Um, and that that is how you that is how you tell the difference between a genuinely left wing analysis of the material basis of society and a kind of liberal analysis which collapses and flattens those material differences into individual choices. You know, it's because they've misunderstood one another. It's because you know whatever. And and I think that's that's a really good object lesson that this film provides in understanding the difference between exactly what Brett has just outlined. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just add lastly is like, you know, just for an example, that the Democratic Party is an example of trying to bring people together around this idea that class doesn't really matter. Like, you know, people don't really have divergent material interests. They have different ideas about the world. And if we are civil and we talk and we debate and we point to evidence, that is the way that we can convince other people to join our side. And that is a fundamental confusion. And so what we're trying to do is say, no, 
that 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 sort of multi-class structure is never going to be sustainable precisely for for the reasons John just laid out, which is at the bottom of all these seemingly conflicts of ideas is a material conflict of interest. And, you know, the capitalist ruling class, the professional class, they have divergent interests from working class people, and that will never, ever be able to be bridged by civility and discourse and debates and posting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, uh, th- thank you, thank you both so much for kind of jumping on that one, and I hope that um, if our if our listeners out there might have been like, I don't know, perhaps bristling at how hard we've been giving it to liberals for this entire episode, that helps them to <laughs> contextualize and and to kind of better understand where we're coming from when we make these critiques. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, absolutely, and I think I think uh, you know, it's it isn't a question of like, oh well, we just don't like. You know, it's not a personal animus. It's not. It's not. It's not a personal. Although occasionally, given what some of them post online, maybe it is a bit right. personal. But it. But it's. But what it comes from is a recognition of that of that very basic way of looking at the world. Right. That before anything, before you get to the realm of ideas, before you get to philosophy, before all of that comes the matter of material need and wants. You know, what do people actually materially need? Uh, and those material interests determine everything else. Well said. Well, uh, this this ended in a place that I was not <laughs> expecting it to end when we started talking about a dumb comedy movie from 2010. <laughs> One last thing I would add add in is that the 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 many and excellent takes that we have here on Horror Van- Vanguard about about the horror films that you like are inextricably bound up with our political commitments. Yes. Right? The, and to all the people who say that maybe they're not that into the political analysis, but they like us talking about films, maybe the fact that you like those takes, it's it's a sign that maybe there's there, there's there's something within you that's responding to the polit- political commitments that we have as well. Definitely. Keep so. investigating. You know, if, if you feel that way, keep investigating why you like, you know, their analysis of films, but you're uncomfortable by their politics. And a lot of times, because I've felt it myself, it is just a product of not fully understanding the terrain mm-hmm. that people are operating on. And so being curious and being humble and continuing to pursue knowledge and trying to understand other people's perspective and not giving into that initial impulse to recoil into what you are familiar with, I think is really important and um, the sort of a hallmark of a sensitive, um, intellectually developing human being. So... Don't be scared. Yeah, to to, to to tie this back into the film really quick. Do you do you want to know who gives in to their impulses and has no desire to 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 learn learn about uh, people and, and their and their beliefs and commitments and philosophies? It's Chad. <clears throat> you know, Ch- Chad is the one who's just constantly barking. You know, like don't think, just running, guns blazing, and and Chad literally gets all of his friends besides one killed. So don't don't be a Chad, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we we are we are proudly anti-chad <laughs> don't be a chad be dale you'd be a dale yeah, be dale absolutely. yeah it's it's a it's incel chad dale <laughs> <laughs> be- because dale actually listens dale actually forges connections with people who seem to be radically different for him from him but together they they find common ground they find shared uh mutual attraction um and if that's that's one thing that to take away from this film absolutely
Amazing. Uh, yeah, Brett, is there anything else you want to uh, uh, talk about or, or dig into in regards to this film or horror more broadly? Uh, no, not really. Um, I had a great time. This is a this is a great movie to watch. I'm glad you guys had me on to, to uh, watch this movie and to talk about it with you. I hope people find our analysis of it interesting and, and worthwhile. And I will say that, you know, there's one death in this film that, that, that could have been prevented. Um, well, they all could have been, but the one that specifically could have been prevented is the the person who doesn't have basic firearm safety and ends up pointing the muzzle at himself yes. and shooting. As a member of the Socialist Rifle Association, I must inform people that taking gun safety courses, if you're going to own or operate a gun, is of the utmost importance. Never put your hand on the trigger if you're not ready to shoot. Never point the muzzle at another living creature that you don't intend on on shooting. Um, gun safety can really go a long way. And, you know, that's one death that could have been prevented. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much to Brett. Please, everybody listening, do check out um, revolutionaryleftradio.com. Please do support the Rev Left wider universe, which includes a host of excellent podcasts, hours of incredible educational content that has um, been put out over the past couple of years. Uh, and their their new project, which is uh, the the shift onto YouTube to try and uh, carve out more space for genuinely radical left wing video content on a platform that's so often been deeply reactionary on a on a massive scale. Um, so thank you so much, Brett. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. I love the horror vanguard. I love Ashton John. And although it's not formally true in, in in spirit and in every other way, the horror vanguard is a part of this bigger federation that we're all <laughs> that we're all putting together. Um, you know, it's formally we have a few people, but definitely you guys are under our umbrella and we're under yours. So uh, solidarity and thank you so much for having me on the show. I love what you guys are doing. Keep up the great work. We we will definitely uh, join your side at the first podcasters international. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay spooky.